Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year, for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Daisy Alpert Florin is the author of My Last Innocent Year, a novel. Daisy attended Dartmouth College and received graduate degrees from Columbia University and Bank Street Graduate School of Education. She is the recipient of the 2016 Catherine Gerfine Writing Fellowship at Sarah Lawrence College and was a 2019-20 fellow in the Bookends Novel Revision Fellowship, where she worked with founding director Susan Scarf Merrill. A native New Yorker, Daisy lives in Connecticut with her family. My Last Innocent Year is her debut novel. Welcome, Daisy. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss my last innocent year, a novel. 
Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. No, it's it's such a joy. To set the stage for this book, I just wanted to read this quick passage so you could tell us where you weigh in on this. <laughs> so it goes, did you hear about Jason? He asked. Yeah, I'd been shocked that Jason, Kelsey's boyfriend, had been rejected. He was what, this is a, I should preface this more. There's a seminar. There's an important seminar to which you had to apply to be accepted with this fabulous woman teacher who ends up not being the teacher. But anyway, so she's chit-chatting with a friend who said, did you hear about Jason? And she said, yeah, I'd been shocked that Jason, Kelsey's boyfriend, had been rejected from the seminar. He was what I thought of as a real English major. He memorized poetry, annotated short stories in The New Yorker, and was writing an incomprehensible thesis on James Joyce. All I did was write stories about, quote, girls with feelings, unquote, as Andy put it once in a workshop. According to Kelsey, Jason was devastated. Okay. So is this a book about girls with feelings or is this a real English major book? And how how do you feel about both genres to get us started? I love that you um, pulled out that quote, actually. Yeah. You know, I will just say that I wasn't an English major in college and perhaps because somewhere I had that sense that what I was interested in reading about or writing about wasn't like valuable or wasn't sort of of the canon. Like looking back, I think I was kind of like a lazy reader and never felt like I was reading the right things or like kind of skim reading the things I had to read in high school or doing Cliff's Notes and all of that. So I don't think I ever really thought of myself as a real you know, serious writer. So that just kind of came out. So I never was in a seminar like that, but I think I can imagine feeling that way. I mean, I can remember someone telling me at one point when I was writing, you know, personal essays, oh, you need to find a big topic. You really need to write about a big topic. I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but um, (laughs) but yeah, I, I wanted to, I, that girls with feelings thing just kind of came to me and then just sort of kind of persists as a motif in the book. I think, I think we, you know, women's fiction is sometimes called exactly that women's fiction or kind of like siloed into this like domestic stories. Those were the stories I wanted to read. So I think it makes sense that it's what I ended up writing. Although I think it is about big topics, you know, not just, you know, squishy girls with feelings. Although what's wrong with that, right? (laughs) Nothing's wrong with that. I like reading about <laughs> anybody. I like reading about feelings. I feel like to get into the most difficult topics, you have to go really deep into a single person or single experience. And that's how you, it's much easier, at least for me, to understand big concepts by a story, by someone telling you their experience with it versus just reading about it analytically. But anyway, I, I just related to that so much because I often feel like a total like sham <laughs> like because like I dropped out after one class of my freshman year, like Chaucer English class. And I was like, no, thanks. I'm taking like prose writing and I'm going to go back to writing personal essays. And I want to read contemporary fiction and everybody would read Chaucer and I would go home and read Bridget Jones diary. And I'm like, all right, well, this is what I like. <laughs> that I Yes, I completely relate. Someone said to me once, Oh, I don't read any contemporary fiction. And I thought, my God, I only read, you know, contemporary. (laughs) I love contemporary fiction. I'm like, oh my gosh, am I okay? I know, so funny. Anyway, tell listeners what My Last Innocent Year is really about and, and where, how did you come to write this book? 
Yeah. So my last innocent year tells the story of Isabel Rosen's final semester at a fictional college in New Hampshire called Wilder College. Isabel is from New York. She's from the Lower East Side, the pre-hipster Lower East Side. Her dad owns Um, an appetizing store, which is a kind of Jewish specialty food store where they sell smoked fish and herring and cream cheese. Um, So she's from this kind of, you know, unusual background. um, And she's at this posh college, but it's her final semester. She's kind of made her way. She's made it into this advanced writing seminar that she's really looking forward to. And right as the book opens, she has an unpleasant, non-consensual sexual encounter with a peer, which sort of rattles her enough that she eventually comes to have an affair with the professor who is teaching that seminar. So it's set in 1998. The loose backdrop is the Clint Lewinsky scandal. Um, And it's just like an exploration of campus culture, the 90s. Really, I wanted to talk about, I mean, I really just wanted to tell a story because I think exactly what you were saying before. Um, I think if I had gone in wanting to tell a story about, you know, what it meant to be a a woman on the campus in the 90s and consent and all that, then I think the book might have felt um, too heavy handed. But I really just wanted to tell this story about you know, what it felt like to come up as a young woman at that time, the late 90s. And I love campus fiction. I just love the container of the college campus to tell this story. I think it really started for me. I started writing it when I was in my early 40s. And I was just like thinking about a lot of stuff that felt like over, like I had been young for so long and now I wasn't anymore. And how did that happen? And So I think the book really just started about, you know, with me interrogating, almost interrogating my younger self, like who was she then? What did she think about her life? What did she think her life was going to be? And then it just kind of grew out of there. Oh my gosh. Well, I have to say I was a senior in 1998. So I felt like this was so perfect. I'm like, I remember all of these things. I remember Princess Diana. Like I remember like all the stuff that you referenced, um, on campus. So it was total flashback moments for me. <laughs> That's great. <Yeah. laughs> and also, I do remember because at that time rape was sort was being talked about in a new way. Like does it mean is it rape if you have sex without totally wanting to? Do, how much do you have to tell someone? Like so I remember having girlfriends who might have, you know, they were like, was it, wasn't it? And like, that was very much in the, in the conversation back then. And I don't really know exactly where it all netted out specifically, (laughs) other than that, that is the beginning of, of that, of the awareness that led to many more things. Uh, Yeah. I don't know where it netted out exactly. I feel the same way. I mean, I was talking to a friend, you know, I was saying, you know, we didn't really talk about that stuff. I mean, I'm like, a, you know, I went to, I entered college in 1991 and I don't really remember. I remember when we got to campus, we were talking about all that stuff, like no means no and a take back the night march and yep. all of that. But I don't really remember talking about it before that. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like it was dropped onto the campus, getting all this information at the same time that you're 
like sort of let loose, you know, on on in this new environment where you're kind of unsupervised for the for you know really for the first time, and it felt really exciting. And so all of that was happening at the same time. Perhaps if ground, you know, now I know, you know, we lay the groundwork earlier. I have teenagers, you know, who have had many more conversations than I did certainly. But I wanted to sort of represent this kind of experience that I think a lot of women have and the the labels you know I'm not really interested I guess in like was it rape was it not rape you know it's like a harm had been done to her and I just wanted to explore that and sometimes like the lack being unable to label something leads to a lot of extra shame because you can't sort of identify as a victim or whatever and like you feel you just turn a lot of the blame onto yourself so I wanted to like explore those kind of gray like icky areas icky feelings I don't know why I wanted to do that yeah. it's kind of unpleasant, <laughs> but um but yeah I think that a lot of people have have sort of responded to that and with that same you know like I know women who've had that or that's happened to me or you know and I, so I think that's important to put put on the page yeah for sure I was also interested in how how you brought in like the sort of benign, if you will, stealing that went on and how that became one of her coping mechanisms to kind of get through all like the loss of her mom and the upheaval in her life. And, you know, that is something that so many, not so many, but it, it is a thing among teenagers, especially and in college and all that. And yet doesn't get talked about so much. And also, and I like, anyway, how did you decide to make that sort of one of the ways that she coped? Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, It's something that was important to me and not that many people have even like really picked up on that, that she is um, a thief. And I don't, you know, she is someone who comes from a background where she just feels lack generally, you know, materially she's not from a you know an affluent family at all and she's lost her mother so i just thought it would be interesting to have her just take things you know she's really taking things more in high school and she kind of has stopped by the time she gets to college where she says you know she would have had ample opportunity because everyone just like leaves all their things around. And, you know, it's just the carelessness of her more affluent friends, but it kind of creeps in a little bit that temptation creeps in as the novel progresses. Yeah. I think it is something that I know people did, you know, growing up adolescent, like taking something from, you know, the convenience store or whatever, and what you could get away with. I don't know. It's just something I don't, you know, you don't see it represented that much in literature. And it's not something she really even has, there aren't really consequences for it in the novel. So it just kind of runs through as a, as a motif, you know, and then of course she's having this love affair with her married professor. So it's still a little bit of that. What can I take that isn't mine? Totally. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, and actually, the, the whole love affair and everything, not to give things away, but it almost becomes not a thriller, but there's a, you know, there's like a, a, a mystery to be solved towards the end, and and she's a very much essential piece of the puzzle. It's almost as if, you know, she's writing herself into the narrative of the, of the school while she's being taught, right? And yet she's inserting herself into this sort of dramatic plot as it unfolds. Okay. I'm glad you think that. Um, yeah, it was one of those things that I, as I wrote into the book, you know, plot, these plot points kind of came later for me. I was really trying to capture like feelings and vibe and emotions. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, well, I'm writing a novel. So I have to have like all <laughs> happen. So um, that kind of got layered in a little bit later. But yeah, I mean, it is essentially a book about a woman, young woman trying to find her voice and trying to learn how to tell the truth. And so I felt like that was an important part of that journey was for her to do something that had a consequence for her. Yeah. And the way you wrote about loss was so beautiful too. Like where did, have you gone through loss yourself or like, what did you tap into to write those sections? Yeah. So my mother did die, not at that exact time. Um, Isabel loses her mother earlier than I lost my mother. It wasn't even like a conscious decision on my part. It was just like, oh, she's going to have lost her mother. It just sort of, you know, creeps into the narrative without me really intending to. And then I feel like the mother's voice kind of comes through at these moments. She imagines things her mother might have said, or my mother, you know, what she would have thought about something. Um, and that is how I how I feel sometimes, you know, when I see things like, oh, my mother would have loved that, or she would have thought she was really annoying, or, you know, she would have had a blast doing that. So I think that, you know, one of the other things I wanted to give Isabel when she came to this college was not just feeling out of place, you know, maybe culturally and in terms of her socioeconomic background, but also she has experienced a loss that most people, young people, when they go to college have have not. So it's something else that isolates her and... um you know, I think, I think I did feel that way. You know, I lost my mom in my late twenties. She wasn't at my wedding, you know, and I think I felt like some, like almost a little bit of shame around that. Like I had suffered this thing that other people hadn't suffered. And it's like, it makes you feel on the outside of, you know, of experiences. I've come to feel differently about that now, but I think it's, I I, I also do remember I remember a friend in college who lost her father while we were in college. And I, I, I just remember, like, I don't think I ever said the right thing to her. Like, I didn't really know how to talk to her or 
help her. And when I think back to that, that I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I was just a terrible friend or whatever, but it was like too much for my brain to process at that, at that time. So I, you know, again, it just sort of, I didn't intend to have that. It just sort of was there naturally. But I think as the book progressed, I felt like it was a really important part. I'm really sorry about your mom. Thank you. Thank you. Can you say, how did she, was it an illness or? Yes. My mom was awesome. My mom, she was 56, which at the time everyone's like, oh, your mom was so young. And I didn't really, I was like, well, 56, not like so young, but now of course, and I'm almost 50, it's terribly young. Um, So she got cancer and died very quickly. It was like, you know, like she was like not sick for nine weeks and died. And it was very shocking and very sudden. And she was really just like in the middle of her, you know, second act in life. And um, we, we, we lost her quickly and too soon. And it was a very, it was just a shock to me in my late twenties. I'm so sorry. Thank Wait, you. so tell me about, I know you grew up in New York city yeah. and then you went to Dartmouth, right? Where perhaps Wilder is based loosely. Yeah. I'll just throw that out there. And then what happened after that? And like, what stage of life were you in, in your late twenties? And then how did you come to be writing now at this stage? Well, you know, I, I left college um, and I worked, you know, briefly as a newspaper reporter, but then I realized I didn't really like talking to people or talking to strangers. <laughs> I'm very bad at that, which makes you not a very effective newspaper reporter. And then I worked in book publishing in New York. And then I ended up going and working. I taught elementary school and I taught preschool and I went and got a couple of master's degrees, um, not in creative writing. And then I just, you know, I had my son when I turned 30 and I just stayed home with him and I eventually had two more children and I was just like home with my kids for, you know, 10 years and I really enjoyed those years. Um, I taught a little bit at that time. Also, I was teaching preschool and then in my late 30s, I just started, you know, writing. I had a blog because it was like 2010 and I was writing about my kids and I started writing personal essays and I was taking some workshops locally. And I just like over time got like more, you know, took my writing more seriously. And then in 2015, I started to write scenes that would become this novel. And I, I just wanted a, looking back, it was like, always there, this interest, everything was sort of circling around words. I come from a family that my brother's a newspaper journalist, his wife's a journalist, my father was in PR in the theater. So all around like storytelling, my aunt was an English teacher, like we're all, that's kind of our our family business now that I can see that more clearly. But at the time, I didn't see that that was where I was heading. And I don't think I would have, you know, ever thought to be a writer when I was younger. Um, I don't think I had anything that I really wanted to say. So yeah. And then the book really, I wrote mostly through my forties, which just felt like the absolute right time for me. And now I turn 50 in May and it's going to be, it's out now. So it's, I feel really delighted to have like finally figured out what I want to do with the rest of my life. You know, I feel really lucky that I had a chance to do this. That's amazing. That's so great. I think the 40s are the best time to write. I feel like most, and maybe it's because I'm in my 40s. Yeah. And so I'm I'm drawn to the topics, perhaps, of a lot of people writing about this time. But I don't think that's it. I think this is just the 
most of what's coming out is written by people in their 40s, 50s, and up. It's it's rarer, younger. Um, but anyway, uh, I think you have enough life experience and enough wisdom and enough energy to do it all. <laughs> yeah, and also, you know, just more confidence. I think like, yep. you know, the way that I, you know, when I was growing up, I felt very like motivated by external validation and that I had to sort of do things that fit like other people's perceptions of what made sense for a life. And, um, now I can see that, you know, you just have to like step boldly into your own life and do the thing that you want to do, even if it doesn't really make sense to people on the outside, which, you know, when you decide in your forties, when you're like the stay at home parent of three kids, like I'm writing a novel, you know, people are like, okay, that sounds good. Like, <laughs> you know, and I think when I was younger, that would have probably derailed me. You know, if someone yeah. had asked me like, oh, did you go to school for that? Or is that something you've always wanted to do? And the answer to both of those questions would have been no. And I think when I was younger, I would have taken that as a sign that I should just stop. Like, oh, I have no business doing this. But now I know. The other thing I learned later in life was that I used to think that if something was hard, that meant you weren't good at it. And now, of course, I know that everything is hard. <laughs> you know, like, you know, basically every single thing is hard and that has no bearing on, you know, whether you're good at it or not. You just, it's just yeah. whether you stick with it. Well, everything is hard until you learn it. Yes. Like you can't just yes. know. Yes. It, yeah. Like everything seems, if you let that be the gating item, then you wouldn't try anything. Right. For yeah. sure. So I know now I feel like this is what I tell my kids. I know. And then you try to tell your kids and it's like, they, you just have to watch them go through it all themselves. I know. I mean, look at us. We're just learning this now, like in our late forties, our mid to late forties. I tell my kids like, oh, if you, if you just did what I told you to, you'd be a lot better off, you know, but they can't, they cannot do that. No, it doesn't work. But we can, we can't stop trying though. You know, (laughs) can't stop trying. I was like you, by the way, I stayed home for 11 years, basically had four kids and, and and I always loved to write. And I would say I was working on something, but then I would feel like such an imposter. And then I was at some point I was like, can I just call myself like a non-practicing writer? Cause all my non-practicing lawyer friends would say that. And that at least gave them legitimacy, you know? (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, but no, anyway, well, so now that you've gotten like sort of the writing, not bugs and, you know, but the confidence and the book out and all of that, are you, is, are you like gearing up to do another novel? You know, my husband always said, I guess it was some singer and I'm going to misquote it. who was like, you have your whole life to produce your first album and then like six months to produce your second. Yes. And so he always reminds me of that, but I feel like it's the same thing with so many authors. It's like, oh, okay, I've been kind of working on this for 10 years and now like my next book's due. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I've had a friend who said the same thing. It's like your first novel is like the things you've been thinking about for your whole life. And now they're like, do it again in two years. I do have another, I would like to write another novel. I do have um, something I've been working on. Not, I haven't really touched it in like a couple of months because I've been so, you know, like hyped up and excited about promoting this book and have, you know, been able to talk about it with people. But I would like to write another one. And I have to just, I have to think it'll be, I don't know that it will be easier at all. I don't think it will, I think it will be equally difficult, but I do hope I've learned something in the process of writing this one. So I maybe start out on steadier ground or just maybe don't make exactly the same mistakes that I made early on, maybe not as many dead ends, but maybe I will. And I think the one thing that I think you learn by writing a book is that like 
the process is the process and the process is messy. And um, I think I read once like frustration is not an interruption of the process. Frustration is the process. So Mm. um, just knowing that it's, it's for a long time, you just feel like you're not accomplishing anything. You know, you're writing pages that you don't end up using, but that you need to do all of that to get to the finished product. So hopefully I can hold on to that and, and do it again. I would like to very much. Amazing. Do you have any books you've read lately that you love or something that's stuck with you for the last couple of years or anything? Well, I loved um, Catherine Newman's book, We All Want Impossible Things. And I know her listeners love to. I've been reading her stuff online for years. Like her kids are kind of the same age as mine. And she would always write. She really was like writing about her kids in a way that made me want to write about my kids in kind of the same way. So she was really an inspiration. And then actually after that, I went I went back and reread All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Toes, which... I had read when it came out, but now I read it again and I loved it all over again. And I can see those two books kind of in in conversation with each other. So those are two books I've read recently. I'm looking forward to Rebecca Mackay's book that just arrived on my... I read that. Uh, doorstep yesterday. Yeah, I hear it's... I, really, I really loved that book. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was really great. Different though. I yeah. mean, it's, not, it's very different from yours, but yes, definitely on a campus, but... um. I it's loved her, her, The Great Believers. I loved that one very much. Um, you so you two should do a, an event or something, you know? Yeah, that would be fun. I know. I think they're both in New Hampshire too. New Hampshire is, I think, I think. Set in New Hampshire? Yeah, yeah. But hers is a boarding, hers was a boarding school. Yeah, well, you'll find out. I have an honestly, my brain can't like focus on anything right now, but like an Instagram post, but um, yeah, I, no, I totally get it. I totally get it. <laughs> well, Daisy, I'm so excited for you. I'm, you know, it's so great. I love hearing these stories of persistence and books that are about the feelings, like the just girl, girl's feelings, but with deeper stuff behind it. And, you know, this is how we connect. So I, I think it's great. We connect over shared experiences. So yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. You too. Are you based in New York, by the way, or where are you? Um, I live in Connecticut. I live okay. in, in Greenwich. Yeah. Okay. So perhaps our, our paths will cross soon. <laughs> I would come to New York a lot. I'm okay. actually coming today. So yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, come on over. You could have done it here. <laughs> I know. I'll come and not ring your doorbell. Okay. All right. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 